Welcome to season four of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do more good. Do good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Live from a cafe in central London, this is your 14th favourite social good show, the Do More Good Podcast. Always room for improvement, Jimbo. Here we are, James, episode number 49 of the Do More Good Podcast. How are you doing? As ever, Kenneth, I'm good. I'm good. I've got to say, though, I have spent the last two days on a, on a legacy workshop. Okay. So it's been quite full on. You know, lots of thinking, lots of brainstorming, lots of innovation. It feels like I've been on a kind of, I've got I've taken a fundraising speedball. You know, nice. I'm really up on the ideas. I'm really excited about what we're going to do. But I've also had two days of it. So, <laughs> you know, halfway through I might flag. But at the moment I'm feeling, feeling good. How about you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Suffering with a little bit of the <coughs> croaky cough. So please excuse me yeah, if I, you are, or yeah. you can edit those out. But yeah, I'm good. I'm carried on my uh, February of, of dry January. Well, no, actually, I lie. Dry January came to an abrupt end on Saturday night <laughs> at a fundraiser for my local village football club that my children play for. And you well, anyone that anyone that follows you on social will have seen this, right? Oh, I did post it on social, did. didn't I? Yeah, did. so we had a bit of a nightmare. Unfortunately, we had a race night booked where we had someone coming in. You know, we paid them a bit of money, a bit of a deposit to come in and, and entertain 100, 120 guests that we had coming along to the local working men's club for a bit of a fundraiser. Um, got there five minutes before it's all started. Got the call. Sorry, cancelled. Can't make it. So, you know, the whole fundraiser in me came out, Jimbo. Came this out. This was your moment. This was the moment. Where's the... What, what can we do? Come on. Let's entertain. So we quickly downloaded a quiz pack. Got everyone sat down. Some paper pens. Everyone had a great time. Got to the bar. Plenty of drinks. Lots of, lots of fun. Lots of money being raised. And then we decided on a salmon race. Now, for our listeners who may not have seen the video, can you describe salmon racing to us? Well, basically it involved getting one person from each team to queue up on the dance floor and then proceed to the finish line on their bellies without using their arms and their legs. So it was like a, a bunch of old guys basically flopping across the dance floor. I mean, it's that well worth the watch. It <laughs> is you, well worth the watch. You have to watch the video. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, check that out. But no, other than that, other than that, um, uh, good. I saw you this... This week on Monday, you're doing well, a sterling job. Well, much like drop. a salmon out of water. Yes. Yeah. So we were both presenting, weren't we, on yeah. Monday? Yeah, I had, the, la- I had the, the easy job. So I was just chairing a panel, so I just batted questions at them. But that yeah. was fine. I got mocked for my uh, TK Maxx pose throughout. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> if that's all they're mocking me for, then that's fine. Whereas you were on the panel. That was the IOF event managers event I- events fundraising conference 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 yeah. yeah that was right yeah yeah yeah. i was on a panel about sustainability which was really good and actually i felt coming off the panel like it was a it's a topic that everyone's kind of you know hot on at the moment and actually when we looked around the room and said you know who's thought about this who's done something about this at work a lot of people put their hand up so that was was really positive and, and hopefully people take it forward and you know continue to action it so yeah good good because yeah, the effects of that good. should should um, affect all of our uh, causes, shouldn't they? So we should be taking that seriously. Absolutely. And I mean, of course, it's a massive thing for us in terms of kind of the, the London Marathon and coming up to our first event on uh, March the 1st. Ooh. Big half. Are you running it this I'm year? I'm not running. I ran big half a couple of years ago. Okay. This, this year I'm doing landmarks. You d- you're doing what? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Let's not talk about that. Anyway, let's get on with the show while our guest is sitting here very patiently. So we've got an exciting show for you this week. Our guest started her career in the third sector in 2001 after graduating with a degree in history and politics. And following two years as a fundraiser with Jewish Care, setting up and implementing a new major giving programme for young volunteers, she joined NSPCC in 2003 as a fundraising manager in the Major Gifts team. Following an internal promotion, she went on to have a long and successful career with the charity, securing multiple million-pound gifts from a number of individuals and their companies. And then in 2011, she decided to make the big jump into consultancy, working across innovation, strategy training a major donor development and she came to us highly recommended from a fellow do more good alumni rob woods to join the show as a guest and we're really excited to hear more from elana jackman welcome hello thank you very much for having me on the show you're very welcome how are you doing 
Very well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for making the trip down from up north to south of the river. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Been an interesting January f- and couple of days of February so far, and yeah. I'm excited to have a, a searching discussion tonight. Searching discussion. Ooh. That sounds like the pressure p- on. putting the pressure yeah. on. <laughs> well, should we start off with the beginning of your career then? Where did it all start? Where did you decide that fundraising was for you, or did you not? Did you fall into it like many of uh, our other guests? No, I sort of had. I came out of university with a decision to do good with you know my career and that sort of worthy approach. And um, I thought, what I thought I wanted to do was marketing for charities. And then an opportunity came up and I went for interview and took it. And I hadn't really thought of fundraising before. I'd done some fundraising, but I I thought I wanted to do this sort of artistic, creative bit, the marketing sort of side. But then I started fundraising and I found that that was, it was creative and it was a challenge, you know, the mental challenge and the building relationships and seeing success, you know, seeing able to build campaigns and see success in a different way. And I found I enjoyed it and connected well with my donors. Yeah, so I set up the Young Patrons program and got into major gifts in a big way. Did you ever do salmon racing as a fundraiser? Um, I haven't tried it yet. (laughs) I mean, to me, it sounds more like the worm. Kind of the worm, but you think about the sidewards twisting as well as the up and down. There was one guy (laughs) towards the left-hand side who was adopting a worm approach, (laughs) but it was the guy on the inside. I mean, he was fast. Yeah, Yeah. I I mean, at the NSPC, we had a conquer, a conquer event, conquer fundraising. We're like, you know, the things that they banned at primary school. That's all conquers challenge stuff. So maybe we should try Um, that one. Try that one next Next, time. The next fundraiser. So, what was it when you got into your fundraising career? Sorry to get a little bit more serious back in there. (laughs) Away from worms and wiggling around on the floor. James, stop it. What was it that early time when you kind of, you, you described you, fall, you fell into fundraising, Yeah. but you found that creativity in that role or in the job. Can you talk a little bit about the size of the organisation at that point? What was the, what was the organisation yeah, so, that you went um, to? I don't know, I guess I don't know what you mean by size. About a thousand or Sorry, I guess I t- in terms of the employees, I mean, yeah, how much, and about how much was it raising? Yeah, about £44 million pound turnover. Okay. So something like a, that. Okay. And... The philanthropic part of that was about a third. Okay. So it was kind of major donor focused rather than kind of community and events that we were having um, now? Or there was community everything. events. There was regular giving. But yeah. yes, I was in the major donor team. And my role, apart from supporting the whole major donor sort of activity, mm. was to work with young volunteers. Mm. So there were a whole set of young volunteers and working with them on their fundraising. And then as... As you said so nicely in your introduction, introducing the Young Patrons Programme. Okay. So, as a kind of a junior to the, what we were not allowed to call the Old Patrons Programme. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Jewish Care is a community organisation, and so there are lots of people within the Jewish community who are involved in Jewish Care as volunteers, as donors. Their kind of children, the people in their family, will also be involved in the charity in a as kind of part of a family commitment and I guess most people in the Jewish community have had to use Jewish care in some way or another it's a social care charity they will have spent time visiting old people's homes and as um, part of a major major giving program bringing through that next generation seems like a very sensible idea yeah exactly engaging with those guys and so I had this whole so I was you know in my 20s I had this whole group of young people who wanted to come and do social events for good and so we put on different parties and events and but there was no program for as you say for bringing them through to Mm. the more serious philanthropic giving rather than the community events fundraising bit and it was at Jewish Care that I realised the limitations of events fundraising. Mm-hmm. And so th- I'm quite passionate now about the fact that events fundraising cannot be an end in itself. Mm. It has to be a jumping off point mm. for building relationships with people. So, you know, you obviously do running events. Mm. Um, you've got all these people coming to run because they're yep. committed to whichever charity. Then you've got the circle around them yep. who are donating to them that's a connection point if you don't then leap from that point to the next point of them having a longevous relationship with your charity Mm. you have expended an awful lot of energy and you know acquisition cost on getting people involved to then burn through them 
That's and a brilliant point about events fundraising, that secondary audience of people that they become ambassadors for you and are talking to all of their mates about, about you and yeah, what you're doing. Yeah, but even more than that, <coughs> if you are running a fundraising event, um, I will always coach people that you need to know the five or ten people who are going to be at that event with whom you want to have a long-term relationship. Mm. So the event is the entry point. You know, it's brilliant. It's a gateway into the organization. They might come to it because your speaker's famous. They might come to it because their friend brings them. They might come to it, you know, for whatever various different reasons. Mm. That's your opportunity. They're not going to necessarily walk in the door for other reasons. They might not take a cold call from you. They might not, you know, take a meeting if their friend asks them to do that. Mm. But they'll come and sit on their friend's table. Then you have an opportunity to meet them and to say, can we come and talk to you about what we're doing? It sounds funny. like you should have been signed up for the events <laughs> conference on Monday yeah, instead of I us two. I was yeah. going to say, it, it, it does surprise me how many people that I speak to, I mean, now in my current role, obviously speak to a lot of people from different charities. And when we talk about lifetime, lifetime value of, a, of someone yeah. who comes and does the, the marathon, for example, yeah. or actually what is this marathon place worth to your organisation, yeah. that it's sometimes quite difficult for them to quantify that. In terms of what you're talking about, about bringing that person on and, and actually whether even they have a program to yeah. explore what you're talking yeah. about. Do you find that that's the majority of charities haven't really considered what you've just talked about? Or do you find that the bigger ones are considering it? I'm just trying to get yeah, an idea. Yeah, I mean, the bigger ones are better at it. Mm -hmm. That there'll be pockets of excellent practice and pockets of less good practice everywhere. But having that foresight is probably more lacking than it should be mm. about so I had this whole program calendar of events that I was running at, at Young Jewish Care was the name of the sort of my bit I just had to churn them out every year but actually where's the kind of the KPIs of how long people volunteer for what they then go on to do and whether they then become donors whether any of them become reg regular givers you know how are we measuring the point of doing any of that activity mm. and you know, what does success look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you run, you know, if you get Richard Branson to come and talk at some city breakfast event sponsored by Deloitte, you know, wonderful big thing and you get 200 people there and yeah. everyone pays thousands of pounds a ticket and whatever else, that's great. You've made a lot of money. You've also spent probably six months of a person on delivering that event. Yeah. Depending on the size of the event, you might have spent a year's worth of salary on that. Okay, you've made money, but what have you made for the future? Mm. I, lo I love that. Look, as a young fundraiser coming in and not just thinking about the immediate metrics that you would maybe uh, uh, judge an event by, you're thinking about longer-term value and what can we then push these people. I would have loved you in my team, you know, as a young fundraiser coming through. Well, that would I have been mean, amazing. It was a great I mean, it was a conversation that I had with somebody while <coughs> I was there. And, and he said to me, he came in for a little bit, I think in an interim role, and he said, you know, what I see is 15 fundraisers mm. running a huge events calendar. A lot of time and effort and energy and resource put yeah. into that. What's yeah, the yeah. I was going to ask you, actually, kind of reflecting back on that time, it sounds like you, you grasped that pretty quickly. How did, how did you learn on the job? Did you take any kind of formal training or was there a, there a great boss or was there a mentor at that time? How did you evolve these skills? That's an interesting question. I mean, I'd done youth work before then. Okay. So I think that youth work was was a big big training for me yeah. in understanding people, what motivates people, enthusing people into doing things, empowering people to do things. So yeah, I think my you know I always go back to my youth work training when as um, my foundation for all the training I run now and mm. coaching I do now. Really, it's, it's all rooted in that. Wow, interesting formative years, and yeah. what that then instills in you for later life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you went on to so you spent a couple of years at that organisation, yeah. and then joined one of one of the big ones yeah, in terms of the NSPCC. That was thrilling. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. What was the kind of major thing, the major difference that you you, you saw when you kind of went day, in first day at in. NSPCC? Something that surprised me was the research team. Okay, Having what in a terms whole of philanthropy? Department of people who. Could who look at, you know, who's who. Could find out about yeah. people. Yeah. Because yeah. um, you'd never had that before. Right. And also stuff like the formality of how you forecast and, you know, manage your donors on, mm. on a, a program. And then there are reports on that and you've got your ask dates and 
the real accountability. So did you find that when you went into the organisation, it sounds like there was a lot of things that you opened your eyes to that you weren't necessarily aware of or yeah, I mean, you had to do a lot of learning to kind of I get up to... I had to do a lot of learning. Any organisation you join, I think the first thing is the acronym learning curve. Oh, gosh. <laughs> crazy, I'm crazy, your own language. I love an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> I bloody love them. DMG. DMG, yeah, 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 exactly. But I can appreciate how difficult that is for somebody new coming in, but maybe that's why I like them. They're creating that sense of gang that you're <laughs> yeah, in the club if you absolutely. understand Absolutely, it's a language. <laughs> yeah, it's a language. I, you know, I did an exercise once when I was in youth work where different youth clubs, um, we got people to stand up and have a conversation with each other on purpose, trying to speak in their their youth group lingo so that nobody could understand mm. you know their acronyms and words and nouns and whatever it was that they had that were specific to what they did and it really highlighted to them how you speak in a group and how you uh, yeah you need to talk so that you're understood different language um, do we do that with supporters as well kind of how we pass people I'm, around I'm teams yeah it's a huge thing for me so whenever i'm so i write a lot of propositions for you know, in the course of my work, working with fundraisers, I write and edit a lot of propositions to have a really strong piece to fundraise off and spend a lot of time saying, you know, external language. How will, you know, how will people understand that? Especially if it's been written by a service practitioner. Yeah. At the NSPCC, I did quite a bit of informal coaching without trying to tell people how to do their job with people who ran projects don't say csp which is the children's services practitioner mm. you know don't even say children's services practitioner just say counselor yeah you know i know that you're not a counselor but people will get that they'll understand a that children's services a practitioner just sounds really cold yeah don't talk about users talk about children yeah i know that you that they are users and you're being respectful, but yeah. it sounds cold. And so there's a really interesting dynamic between the fundraiser and the rest of the organisation that you have a foot in and a foot outside the organisation and you have to enable the outside world to understand the organisation and the organisation to speak to the outside world. How, how, how long did you spend at the NSPCC? Eight years. Eight years. Eight years. Yeah. Which is a good amount of time in, in, in the charity sector in, and in, so in, in London. So did you change roles there? Were you, yeah, yeah, there were a few different roles. A few yeah. different roles. What yeah, were you, what were so you I started um, fundraising within Full Stop. So the big £250 yeah. million pound Full Stop campaign. Yeah. Fundraising for the helpline, which is the um, adults call the helpline when they're concerned about a child. I had to raise £15 million of that 250 Easy. Right, I mean, yeah. when you look at 15 of 250 right? <laughs> small, small beans. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I had a volunteer board of amazing, impressive people. And we went off together. I worked with them. So my work, my working with the young volunteers was hugely helpful there. And, and my youth work came in helpful as well. Came in again. <laughs> Getting people to do things that you need them to do. Absolutely. Um, in the nicest way possible. And how did you continue to upskill yourself during that time? I mean, seven, eight years, a long time. I'm yeah. sure, you know, progressing through an organisation. I mean, the NSPC is amazing at really? training and internal training and okay. sending you on training. Okay. And I benefited hugely from that. I think the NSPC has basically staffed every charity. <laughs> that's that's my feeling, you know, all the alumni who I who I meet. Well, this is how, this is how we met you, wasn't it? With Rob Woods suggesting well, exactly. you. He was he was the first exactly. trainer there, I think. And, and yes, you he know, was, him he and was. Ben Swart coming through there yeah. as coaching. Why was that, though, out of interest? Sorry to, to, to interrupt. Why do you think the NSPCC has been so good at producing people like the, you know yourself and, and others that we've just, just mentioned? Just to focus on it? Did they, did they allow budget yeah, for it? I, I don't know. Perhaps. Was there, was there one individual? Was the CEO at the um, time who was really focused a, I mean, on that? It's a great question. I think that the size and the ambition of the NSPCC meant that we needed to have people with the... Uh, with you know, top skills. Ability to deliver. And, and oh. also, uh, you know, without sounding arrogant, if you wanted a job in fundraising in from 99 to 2008, that was one of the places that was a, you know, a really top place yeah, to go yeah, and yeah. work. Okay. And so in terms of the quality of fundraisers, they had a, they and had choice. And did it feel that way when you were there? Did it feel like we are... The elite, you know, we're, we're, we're the top guys here. We're doing amazing stuff. It feels innovative and it feels like we're really pushing boundaries. Um, it felt 
ambitious. Yeah, yeah, it felt ambitious and it felt successful. Well, like Definitely. a 250 million yeah. target. That's sounds. exactly how it felt. Um, and, you know, I talked about training, but I learned so much from colleagues. I learned so much from senior people, people like Nick Booth, who, you know, ran the campaign. I learned <coughs> so much from the people around me. You know, if you're willing to learn, there was so much to pick yeah. up. But also having significant sized teams. So I will always say to people with their career, you need to go from, you know, my role at Jewish Care, I was fairly autonomous. I learned and I had to do it, get it right, get it wrong, get on with it, mm. iterate, move on. At the NSPC, there was a lot of structure and you needed a lot of things signed off to get stuff done. But there are a lot of people to learn from. And I think moving from kind of small to big to small to big gives you a chance yeah. to, to learn and then implement and then learn and then implement and that's certain like Hugh Brasher talks about a bit about this about having a big target galvanizes people it brings you together you feel like a bit of a gang and you're yeah. y- you get early results and that creates momentum that must have been great to do that to be part of that and it, it was feel yeah it was brilliant and I've worked with some great people who I still you know hugely rate and they have gone off and done all their different fantastic fundraising mm. things and it was it was wonderful when I think about those times when I could say to people, I just need a couple of brains because I've got a donor who's mm. s- stuck. You know, he made a pledge. I can't get it yep. to come through. Can we just go and talk about it? And we would go and talk about it for 15 minutes, solve it, you know, move and move on. on. And that's what I'm still doing with people. So I go into smaller teams now, clear, and I'll yeah. sort of have a sticky prospects meeting, you know, right, who are the people who've pledged? And then, you know, they said yes, but then we're not seeing anything. So... And we've, what have we tried? What can we try? You know, what are the tools available to us? So, or this person won't come to an event. What might b- draw them in? All of that kind of creative thinking space. I try to create that now for in, in smaller charities. But we had that in spades. It was brilliant. So very much a coaching type mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Collaborative. Collaborative, collaborative coaching, which I think we're seeing more of in a lot of organisations now. And actually, I mean, we spoke about on the last episode with someone who's fundraiser currently and has side trained to be a coach. And actually, she's talked about how coaching has come kind of part of the DNA of the organisation now. Yeah. And it seems to be happening in more places. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I know from my own experience, kind of having someone and people at work who are your colleagues, but have also got a bit of experience about coaching and provide you with that space to actually explore yeah. Yeah. what are the barriers to this problem that I'm having yeah. how can you help yeah. don't give me the answer but just help me explore yeah. help me explore it's really good well, I was reading this morning um, actually there were, there were three three companies and one of them I can't remember there's a football club and there was Zappos the shoe company where you can't get fired that you go in you can't you can't be fired by the company so once you're recruited that's it you're in wow. so therefore you kind of adopt this person if they leave okay. they leave but so your only option is to coach them and, and train okay. them and bring okay. them up. So if you're stuck with somebody right. who isn't quite hitting what you need them yeah, to do. Like family. It's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't choose your, your work. Yeah. Co- yeah. So you have to coach, you have to bring them through and that right. in, uh, brought through a sense of looking after people and investment. And yeah. I can't just get rid of this person and start again. Oh. Yeah. So what I've got and I employed and I saw in the interview, yeah. I'm going to bring through. Um, that's interesting because yeah, I wonder how that differs in the UK compared to like employment law comes into a effect yeah. on that kind of situation yeah, and right? I think right, all you've of got the six month thing don't you yeah I mean I'm not yeah. I'm not going to yeah. pretend that I'm going to be an expert in employment law but I was no, thinking about in the US for but, example but in the six months you're proving 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 well, and you're yeah. in a very insecure state the Zappos thing was really interesting because they I can't remember the amount of time let's say let's say two months so they brought you in you had two months and then they offered you money to leave they said we'll give you let's say a thousand dollars to go so really? if you want to go now, so it, it, you made your call at that point. Either you in, invested in the company and you gave away essentially a thousand pounds, a thousand dollars, but then you're really in, like mm. you really love being there, and you want, or you take the thousand dollars and go, and that's the payoff. Well, here you are, James. Here's, I mean, men say here's five hundred pounds. Will you just <laughs> go now? I'm, I'm Honestly, happy to <laughs> offer me a fiver. <laughs> so a lot of that's a nice point, I think, to probably move on a little bit more to you. So you you moved on and decided to go it alone so to speak yes. in terms of coaching and, yeah. and, and training and, yeah. and consulting what was it that led to that decision if so you know? my last role at the NSPCC I was responsible for principal gifts mm-hmm. so bringing in quarter of a million pound plus gifts but also for working with the other major donor fundraisers and there were 30 of them to help them to 
bring in gifts at that level and above. And uh, I loved doing that bit of coaching and uh, collaborative working to help drive their success. And, um, and so then people I knew at different charities who'd moved on from the NSPCC kind of just spoke to me about little projects they were doing and I started going in and working with some people and um, yeah I just really enjoy helping people to do their thing as just best they can. Just as an a tiny aside, let's like on. wander down a cul-de-sac and then come back. On that point of you left the NSBCC bringing gifts of 250k yeah, and started out with the youngsters coming through and maybe thinking about giving their first gifts as they inherited Jewish care. Do you feel like that was a... That feels like a lovely journey yeah. that you have taken, maybe for young fundraisers out there that are yeah. maybe bringing in the smaller amounts. Do you feel like you need that journey from bringing in small amounts to big amounts, that you learn more about donors as you go and then you can um, bring in bigger amounts? Yeah, I it's wouldn't say... Nice yeah, I mean, no, I wouldn't say that it's about bringing in smaller amounts and then bigger amounts. I'd say, you know, at the NSPCC, so I, you know, I brought in a £2 million gift... But, but that was a good day. It was. But I, I would always put that stuff in context because to bring in a £2 million gift at the NSPCC is, you know, the same as bringing in a £10,000 gift at some tiny little local charity. And um, presumably it took the engagement when they were younger, the journey through. To some, no one turns up at the front. No, well, maybe they do, but no yeah, one turns up at the front rare. door and says, here you go, here's 250k. Isn't yeah. They need the journey through, through the teams, through people, and they've had a lovely exactly. experience. Yeah. Isn't the process effectively the same? Exactly, exactly. It's the same. So, so I'm just, I'm loath to kind of show, you know, people show off about size of gift. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, the size of the charity is very relevant to the size of the gift. Yeah. It's about um, the size of the ambition, the, the wealth of the supporters, the, the profile of the charity, all these things because are the projects you can relevant. offer as well that yeah, yeah, exactly. you're not able to. Yeah. But those small steps at the begin, maybe at the beginning of a fundraiser's career can lead on. You're laying the foundations yeah, for bigger absolutely. gifts in later in that donor's yeah, career. But yeah, I don't know if it's about the size of the gift, but it's about the the size of the gift to the person who's giving it, the size of the gift to the charity you're working for, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So James is running a bit late as usual, so it gives me a quick opportunity just to give you an update on where you can find more about us on the social channels. So we're on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod. You can also visit us on the website at domoregood.uk. There you can find loads of episodes and information, and we're also launching our new newsletter soon, so you can hear all about our latest episodes and get some of the VIP content. Oh, here he is. Come on, James, where you been? Okay. So you um so just going back, we've we went down sorry, that we cul-de-sac. No, sorry, cul-de-sac. We, we we tend to do this occasionally, but it's fine. So just coming back. So what it sounded like when you were talking then that you yes. found you almost found a calling. Like you 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 you'd fall into fundraising, you'd obviously enjoyed that journey yeah. and then thought, Oh, hang on a minute, I've got an extra um, I can emphasize or get more from this if I start teaching other people and actually helping other people to be better fundraisers I I love that bit and I also love the innovation you know some of the bits of innovation I was allowed to do at the NSPCC Mm. I enjoy problem solving Mm. so the innovation opportunities of going into a charity and looking at the ways that they can raise more in a smarter more effective way so as well as coaching I also do campaigns I also kind of come up with fundraising mechanism you know ways yeah. for charities to fundraise i did a so one of the things that i went off to do was work with an organization called the giving lab which was is a brilliant well was a brilliant two-year nesta funded project analyzing why people give to charity what inspires people to give to charity wow i, I met them while i was doing a piece of work at a charity called apps for good and i just wanted to work with them because that was, you know, that idea of working out what makes people give and inspiring people to give more and do more good. Um, Thank you. Product nice. placement. We, wait, <laughs> where's the pen? We, we normally, when anyone says that, we'll normally oh, it <laughs> was just really exciting to me. And I found out loads of fascinating stuff there at, at 
at the Giving Lab. Because you, you touched on it when we were talking about kind of what we potentially were going to talk about on the podcast. You, you, you said you'd written a blog yes. about the question whether people are more likely to support you if you make them feel sad or scared or yeah. hopeful or happy. Yeah. Was that something that came out of yeah, that work? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was something that came out of that work. So I think that a few years ago, there was a realisation that the really sad stuff, the kind of, you know, this is a child and their mum's died. This is a, The emotive This sad, is a, yeah. a girl who's been through 16 kinds of hell and she's only eight, just makes people shut down because you, it's so horrible that you don't really want to deal with it. And mm. so if you can look away, you will. And so that realisation that charities have gone a little bit far in the making you feel sad and scared space and actually the hopeful stuff. I mean, you've probably seen the cancer research ads at the moment. This one's got a happy ending. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's really clever. It's really clever because we want, we want to hope. We all know that bad things happen and, and you want to be part of making, you know, making a difference. So Future Crunch, which is this brilliant email roundup organization, I don't know what to call them, um, that I started getting. It's about positive things that are happening in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah, so all the good oh, news send you us haven't a link. read. Future oh, positive news, a bit, a bit similar to that sort of positive thing. Positive news, yeah. yeah. What's really interesting about it, so this, they wrote this article back in December saying that the positive news gets a bad rap because... It's, it can make you completely complacent. Yeah. Well, we all like to read positive news. You know, somebody else is solving the environmental problems. Somebody else is solving cancer. I'll there put my feet up and do nothing. I'm mm. sure when I was... We're talking maybe 15 years ago, 10, 15 yeah. years ago. There was a newspaper that tried to launch as positive news. And no one wanted to and read no it. And no one read it. Yeah. No I one bought I remember it. that. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting insight into the human psyche, isn't it? That right. People yeah, that's... That isn't what triggers uh, what we're interested in. Right, because... Well, if you want to go into evolutionary theory... Happy to. <laughs> Let's go there. You might Let's lose us. Well, you lose me for, um, for definite. James will well, stay for a little bit a little longer, bit but um, like, you know, not long. The tiny amount that I know about <laughs> evolutionary theory, we need to know what the dangers are yeah, to course. us for survival reasons. Yeah. And so we're drawn to bad stuff because has a survival there is a there is a, a trigger in your brain a relevance says, to survival yeah. then you can see what the dangers are out there and then you can you it's know fasc- be aware of them but um yeah you're absolutely right that you know there's a problem with reading with people wanting to read good news but what they said was that it depends how you tell the good news so are you telling it to in, to encourage people to be complacent or are you telling them in order for them to join you in a hopeful way so together we can do something you know there is all this good stuff happening and here's something you can get involved in to make more good stuff happen Mm. and now instead of feeling depressed that there's nothing we can do about the environment and there's nothing we can do about all the bad stuff you feel hopeful and then from hopeful you can actually be active it's clear it's it's kind of that one of those classic storytelling narratives though isn't it about you know the hero the star okay here's what potentially he could achieve and then you follow him on through the journey, yeah. and then finally he does get there yeah. at the end. Which is why those CRUK ads are so brilliant, because you, you've got, I don't know how long your attention span is, walking into the, this yeah. one right bang in front of me on the Northern Line tube. Yeah. And you walk in, and the first thing you see is, this is a good, you know, this has yeah. a happy ending. So immediately... So you're, you're happy not, to read so it, aren't fine. you? So I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm, I'm okay. But you actually feel yourself thinking, oh God, cancer advert, yeah. oh wait a minute, okay, well, I, you've I can read got, that. You've probably got less than a second... Yeah. That yeah. you look at an ad and make a call over whether or not you're going to read what happens underneath, and it's got yeah, the picture yeah, yeah. of the guy. So it's very clever. And the other thing that I heard, that I learned about at the Giving Lab was about shareability. So your success in fundraising is often going to be about that factor of other people doing it and people talking about it and sharing. And so again, positive stuff, things that make people feel good, are more likely to be shared. And so that's another m- huge reason for not p- making people feel sad and scared. And there was this brilliant campaign that a charity ran where they wanted bicycles donated to midwives in developing countries. And if you sent in a photo of you on a bicycle, then there was a company who were going to donate a dollar to their program. So all you had to do was send in a photo of you on a bicycle. And they got thousands of them because there's the leverage of the fact that a photo of me on a bike <coughs> is going to be a $1 donation but then there's the fact that it's shared 
I can send to other people, look, I sent a photo of me on a bicycle, find a photo of you on a bicycle, and I can telegraph to everyone I know that this is something I care about, this is something I'm doing something about, and lots and lots of people sent it in, and, you know, they made hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. off, you know, off that program amongst people who care about cycling as mm. well, mm. you know, so there's also a natural community. Is this something you're seeing more in your work now then? Are you uh, uh, advising charities on, on this type of approach or is it something that you're seeing organically charities are now switching from that maybe negative-led campaign to a more positive, hope-filled campaign? Um, still see quite a lot of negative mm. and some stories, they just are negative. Yeah. And I think that if it bleeds, it leads kind of bit, you know, is still very prominent for people. I guess it depends on the... On, on maybe different demographics of, uh, of donors, for example, yeah, and what resonates and best with them are, and different are audiences. inspired by different things. But mm. I think that certainly there's a younger, younger donors, mm. it seems, are more responsive mm. to, to sort of positive, hopeful messages. One campaign that I did with Kingston University, we asked people, we asked alumni to talk about university changed my future because. Nice. Is this your award winner? Or no, award this is my award winner. Oh, my award nominee, sorry. Oh, yes. It's another one. No, no it's another one. It's oh. another one. Oh. <laughs> so many to, <laughs> to um, remember. Yeah, university changed my future because as this idea of passing on to people coming, considering university from disadvantaged backgrounds, why you know making that leap to go to university could really set them on yeah. a great path. Mm. And what was really powerful about that, so learning from the bicycle campaign i got i sort of got them to secure a corporate sponsor mm. who then gave a five five pounds every time somebody sent in what i call a quoto quoto tm nice i'm trying to get that into the oxford english dictionary what do you think quota yeah i mean i'm not trying very hard but this well, is, yeah. <laughs> Maybe this this is my the start. this is the first this is the launch of my campaign <laughs> you're talking to the rub. I, like I mean it. i love an acronym and any kind of jargon so yeah. i'm in it's a portmanteau, isn't it? Quoto. It is. Yeah. It, is. Yeah. it reminds me a little like using the word portmanteau as well. It reminds yeah, well, me a little bit of the just, what's, yeah, what's like Apple it. using at the moment on their their latest ad for the slow fee. Oh yes, you not seen yes. that? You know where you can do with a new iPhone a slow motion selfie. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's kind of along the same, okay. same yeah. lines. So quoto anyway. Quoto. Of them with um, holding up a sign saying "University changed my future because," and so. Hundreds of people sent, hundreds of alumni sent that in, which obviously led to, led to lots of donations from the corporate sponsor, but also was just brilliant to use with students. But the fundraising aspect of it was that once somebody has thought about, revisited, oh, what was the impact of university on my future? Yeah. Then they're more susceptible they're more open maybe susceptible is a bit manipulative <laughs> <laughs> scratch that yeah. um, they're more open to the idea of of universities and supporting students through university and having a conversation about becoming a mentor becoming a donor it's kind of that similar thing to those cards that you you posted on twitter today so uh when we interviewed the um the two ladies from uh, Marie Curie about their podcast, they left us some of the Marie Curie cards about starting a conversation and there were a set of playing cards yeah. with a, a number of questions on there. And James posted one of the questions today. It, it was, you know, what, what did you want to be as a child when you grew up? Who was your, your oh. hero? Yeah. What did you want to be when you... Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that question. I, I had to think quite hard about it, but I think you put your your father, didn't you? Like, we, you I mean, uh, yeah, but then I uh, then I reread it, and it wasn't who; it was what. So I, I got it completely wrong. Oh, did it's, you? It's oh, okay. picked up <laughs> some legs, and it's gone. So <laughs> it's I've, had gone. To, I've had to. But anyway, it. I my want point to be a journalist. Being, a I've journalist. ended up with you. My point yeah. being that by reflecting and asking yourselves yeah, about experiences, yeah, you're more open to discussing yeah. and opening conversations. Well, this leads on quite nicely to another comment that having that conversation with maybe let's say our parents yeah what do they want from their funeral what do they want their legacy yeah. to be what yeah, yeah. song do they want played yeah. what last yeah. meal do they want all of those difficult awkward conversations that maybe we yeah possibly yeah. find more awkward than somebody approaching that point of their life yeah uh, because we're going to be the ones that are yeah losing them yeah and that maybe they're a, a bit more accustomed to or, or have accepted that a little bit more yeah. Um, it leads us on quite nicely to you were talking about how you, how you, you do a bit more work now around legacy campaigns. Yeah, you love talking about death. I do. Yeah. Um, wow. 
<laughs> what an introduction to that one. <laughs> Thank you. There you Thank go. Teeth that up lovely uh, for you. But the move from major donor to or the the crossover between major donor and legacy because legacy can yeah. is a major gift essentially, isn't yeah, it? You're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're absolutely. possibly leaving. You've, yeah. You've, if you're yeah. fortunate in life, you maybe are leaving hundreds of thousands yeah, of pounds. Absolutely. As a gift. Very similar, in fact, to a well, major gift yeah, in some respects. Yeah. The kind of Venn diagram of do you give that during your lifetime? Uh, yeah, well, you've got me on a passion li- topic here. Yeah. Because I think the thing that I find really frustrating, and actually, this was a conversation we had during the Full Stop campaign, and I then went on to work with my fundraising board on major donor legacy drive within the campaign which was how we eventually raised sort of got the the last little bit of the of the 250 million pound total was that people are not talking to the wealthiest amongst their supporters and actually you know talking to all the people who regularly make donations to you fantastic they're probably sitting on you know baby boomers are sitting on estate wealth and and you know they don't know necessarily what they're going to do with that or they might be willing to give a small percentage of that that's all fantastic but there are people who've done enormous amounts of estate planning who have enormous wealth and are giving in life gifts to your charity major donor donor gifts and there are not enough conversations with them about giving one to ten percent of that to something they've cared about in their life and so there was a piece of research from the behavioral insights team who used to be part of the home office about gifts in wills it's fascinating reading and they found that well firstly 70 percent of people die in test date anyway but of the 30 percent of people who actually even leave a will five to seven percent will will leave a gift to a charity so they ran this study then they mentioned charities and that doubled the amount doubled the number of people who had left a, a gift if solicitors mention a charity but what tripled it was if they asked them what things they care about what causes they care about wow and so that then inspired my award nominated campaign <laughs> which was to have a conversation what matters to you i want my you know i hope my legacy will be was yeah. the was the conversation and it was about talking to people in their 60s and older about what i care about in life what i'd like to see in 20 30 years time to be true and what part i can then play in making that true and after life and you know now and continuing so if if there's someone listening to this conversation now that's maybe in major donor and recognizing what you're saying and thinking yeah. i haven't had that conversation yeah. with anyone what bit of advice would where would where, where would you say they start obviously that the report that you just suggested might be good to link to but yeah. any other advice you'd give them um, absolutely. I mean, you've just been on a two-day training course about this. I'm, I'm, sure. well, I'm, not, I'm not getting him answer it. But if you've got major donors and you've got you or people within your organisation have got warm relationships with them, they are, they've they already done estate planning. They are not having 60% of that going, 40% of that you know, going to, ta- to tax. They'll have all sorts of very smart stuff set up they're not scared about talking about estate planning Mm. there's a conversation to be had about have you thought about after you've taken care of family and friends leaving a small percentage percentage is important Mm -hmm. a discrete gift is less helpful a small percentage of what's left to the things that you care about the things that you the difference that you want to continue to make in the world that's the form of words that I sort of train people with. Simple as that. To have a conversation with their major donors. You've got mm. a relationship. They're already giving. They already mm. care. It's crazy that people who've given enormously in their life, that people are not speaking to them about... You know, because you, you say a major donor gift is similar to a legacy gift. There's one massive difference, and that is the opportunity cost. If I give £100,000 to a charity now, then that's £100,000 that I can't spend on something else while I'm still alive to spend it. Mm. So I might not be able to spend a week on a yacht Mm. or, you know, some other hardship or sacrifice. But if I make a gift after death, that's a bonanza. That's a, what do I want to do with it? That's a kind of... Can't take it with you, sort of. Yeah, you know, if I'm sitting on a house that's a million pounds suddenly that's the biggest gift that I could possibly consider making. And I only have to give away 10% of it yeah. to make 
an enormous, yeah. enormous gift. It's actually a fun exercise. It's a what would you do if you won the lottery kind of exercise, mm. but without having to think about yourself. Just the, the benefit you know. of giving it during your lifetime is obviously you see the possibly you see yeah. the benefit and you get the thank you letter yeah. during your lifetime, which you don't get. If yeah, yeah, you get the recognition. Yeah. Um, it's true, but think about your people who come after you, people who indeed. Care well, there was a really memory. interesting point. This today, we talked a bit, bit around nostalgia and how powerful that is. Yes. And there were some stats around would you rather Oh, I like twice as many rather. people would rather go back in time oh, okay. at their same age rather yeah. than go forward. Right. And the people that would rather go back in time that are maybe more nostalgic about the past yeah. are more likely to give a gift. Which uh, initially really confused me because I thought if, you're willi- if you want to go forwards wouldn't you give a gift now? And then you could see that coming to fruition yeah. in the future. You hope that the future is better than what you had, etc. But actually, I think it's a lot around valuing history and appreciating history and wanting to leave your own legacy on the world. And you, yeah, you've kind yeah, of yeah. seen what's come before, and you're interested in that. Yeah. And then I thought you were going to do a "Would you rather" about you know hands that were pineapples or feet <laughs> that were pineapples. <laughs> we can do that. We can do that. Yeah. That's Which normally James's conversation. Feet. It's feet, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think I'm feet too. I think w- I feel like we could probably sit here with, with, with you t- with you two on your legacies <laughs> conversation. I might just go and uh, I'll be back in about three hours, and uh, you might just be. We right might, yeah, you might we go and pick need, out a coffee. We do need to, yeah, to exa- ask yeah, exactly. Might go and uh, write my will. I know. No, I'm just thinking. Uh, you know, we, we've we've done fif- fifty minutes now, which is a good amount of time. It's yeah. just time flies when you just get into the conversation yeah. as always. But thank you so much, Alana, for coming along and talk. But we're not going to let you go without a few questions. Excellent. So we've got three quick-fire questions. So I'll go with the first one. Go on. If you could transport yourself back in time to meet your 20-year-old self, oh, wow. what piece of advice would you give and why? I have literally no idea. My 20-year-old self. Sounds like your 20-year-old self was already pretty savvy. I mean, I was at uni at 20. Uh, stress less, probably. Stress yeah, less. Yeah, worry, worry less about things. Mm. I think okay. that... Uh, yeah, just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. Nice. nice. Okay. Can you tell us one life hack or productivity tool that you think everyone should know about? Yes. <laughs> yes, I can. I've just started doing a to-do board. To-do board? Yeah. Okay. This is an evolution on the list we had last time. Yeah. Which is that, so I've got kind of post-its with everything that I want to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's big things like plant more trees and there's mm-hmm. small things like, you know, sort out my pension. Well, that's not a small thing, but there's annoying things <laughs> like sort <laughs> yeah, out my pension. It's on my list as well. <laughs> yeah. So there's three sections on the board and the post-it notes all go in the middle and then I'm only allowed three on the right-hand side, which is the do now, the do next. So you're only allowed three at once. Okay. And so once one's done... Then or you can, get something you know, or you can there. relegate it because it's become less important. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's a section on the left which is kind of waiting on somebody else section. So kind of, you know, I have called the man about fixing the curtains and I'm Has waiting. Has he sorted that out yet? He has actually. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> waiting for a quote. And I find it just really I like that. I used to do this on, on a f- on a Friday, say yeah. to the team, right. What are your uh, post it note of doom? The only things on your to-do list today have to fit on a post-it note. And that's yeah. what you can get done. Once you're done, go on a Friday. You're done. But it's, it has to fit on a post-it note. It has to be achievable. Has to, yeah. You know. And I like having my three things because then I can look through the whole, in the middle section, I have to then choose the three that are going to get done now. I mean, obviously, I can avoid the stuff that I kind of, you know, the pension the stuff that I kind How of long's the pension one been on the three? Come on. Or is it on the three? I'm actually dealing with it. I'm meeting the pensions advisor next week. Nice. Good. We we'll like yeah. that. Move that on. We can move on to tree planting. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Plant more trees. So, last question. Yeah. As a podcast that focuses around people doing more good, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual that you've met on your journey who has done something good for others? Wow. That's... That's quite a question to hit me with. It's a hard one, but we like to say you can think about it and you would come up with a list of 100 names. Yeah, no, I think I know my answer. I think Choose Love is my one for this week, which is the pop-up shop from Refugee Charity that they set up in town during Christmas, around, you know, Christmas shopping time. 
and you yes. could go in there and they had um, a display, of, a quite a pretty display of all the things that you could buy for refugees. Mm. And you went in and had a shopping experience of buying the stuff. And the reason that I love it is because, and I'm just writing a blog about this at the moment, we like to give physical things, yeah. right? There's a there's a big boom in kind of giving food to a food bank and donating toys to hospitals and buying coffee or food for a homeless person mm. on the street. Mm. You know, there's there's a big movement of that stuff, but actually that's a hugely inefficient way to give. Mm. And actually can be really counterproductive. So this kind of physical, tangible giving stuff mm. that Choose Love channeled, but done in a really smart way. So if, if I make a donation of baked beans to a food bank, then I haven't gift aided it. Mm. And I bought it at Tesco prices. Mm. So my gift is worth half. I've just slashed my gift in half immediately. And not only that, but I don't even know if they need baked beans. Yeah. Right? So makes sense. You know, and yet you feel like you've done your bit, and you've you, you're maybe not going to give to a to yeah. a charity and, and yeah, allow them exactly. to do. You re, you've basically restricted your gift to a can of beans, yeah. whereas you could have given them. If I walked into a pop-up shop for a food bank, then I could buy the fresh produce that they want. I could they could buy it at a cash and carry. I mm. could gift aid it. Yeah, I've doubled the value of the gift and exponentially increase the value of, of yeah. the of the gift to them. So choose love. Choose love. Oh. There we go. What a nice oh, way to go. Yeah. Way to go. <laughs> Perfect. Alana, thank you so much for coming on. If anyone wants to My find pleasure. you or contact you or reach out, are you on any s- social media? Alanajackman.com. Alanajackman.com. Oh. I'm on LinkedIn, LinkedIn. as Alana Jackman. I-L-A-N-A. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything you'd like to leave anybody with? No, I don't think I, I do. do. I do. Okay. I do. Before, before we started this, you yeah. walked in to Chapter 72 on Bermondsey Street and you said, guys, what does success look like for you? And for me, it is a 50-minute chat that has been really engaging. Yeah, thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Really My enjoyed pleasure. it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, James, we'll see you soon we'll do, for another episode of yeah. More Good Podcast. Cheers. Take care. So, James, just wrapped up another fantastic episode, if I don't say so myself. How did you find it? It's all right, wasn't it? <laughs> If anyone wants to kind of follow up and actually enjoy this thing, where can they find us? Well, we're on Twitter, Kenneth, at Do More Good Pod. Instagram, at Do More Good Pod. Have we gone multi-channel and even gone to YouTube? We have, but you can find all those videos on the website, domoregood.uk. And if you want to contact us by email, please use contact at domoregood.uk.